Welcome to Series 3 of Inquire, the Investor Relations Podcast. In this series, we are speaking with senior portfolio managers to explore their view of investor relations, what constitutes best practice in corporate communication, and learning more about how companies can optimise their dialogue with their shareholders. In today's interview, I'm delighted to be joined by Georgina Britton. Georgina has worked in fund management at JP Morgan in London for 29 years. Georgina is a fund manager for the JP Morgan UK Smaller Companies Fund, the JP Morgan Smaller Companies Investment Trust, and co-manager for the JP Morgan Midcap Investment Trust. She is also a co-manager for a range of European small cap funds. Before joining JP Morgan, Georgina originally qualified as a barrister. Welcome to the Inquire podcast, Georgina, and thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So can we start by you telling us a little bit about how you manage your funds and in particular where your co-manager, how do you split responsibilities? So it varies by the different type of funds. So the, the UK funds that I run or co-run, our approach is collaborative, collegiate, obviously, but we all look at everything. We look at everything. So we don't split the portfolio and say this half is mine and I have ownership because we're running a portfolio, not half a portfolio, and you need to know all about what's going on inside. The difference is, as you said, I co-run pan-European small cap funds as well. And there, I purely run the UK portion. So very that's quite discreet from, from the others. Again, of course, we talk to each other, we know what we're all doing, but that is run very separately. We go circa 5 billion sterling market cap down to about the 100 million. So it's, it's a broad remit. And our focus, it being mids and smalls, is generally is going to be growth. But obviously, you buy a small company with the idea that it gets larger and larger. And hopefully, for the good ones, the big successes, they go all the way to the FTSE 100. Across your very impressive 29-year portfolio management career, a huge amount has changed in the UK equity market. So what do you think has been the biggest challenge for you as an equity portfolio manager today? And I'm interested in how does that compare to maybe 10 or 20 years ago? I'm going to say that the biggest challenge compared to the very many years ago when I started doing this job is information overload. There just is too much information and there aren't enough hours in the day. And just as a, for instance, Today, the day we're speaking, it's actually quite a quiet time in, in the UK market. By the time I get into work, I have 200, 250 new emails. That's before eight o'clock in the morning. Just too much information out there. So how do you handle the volume of information? How do you prioritize within that volume of emails what to, to focus on first? Well, that's a very good question. So if I just stand back for a moment, when how I look to invest... I'm focusing on three things in particular. Momentum, so how's the company doing, but crucially, how's the company doing versus its its forecasts and its own budgets. I'm obviously looking for value in my company, so a value tilt. And then also the third sort of criteria or strand of, of how I invest is quality. And that is, of course, we can talk about management quality, et cetera, but actually I'm talking about balance sheet metrics again. So at all times, and we have a proprietary screening process here at JP Morgan Asset Management. So all the stocks that I own and in the universe that I'm looking at are ranked and screened and updated every single day. And that is a fantastic 
information tool. So I know where to focus my attention, either on companies that I own that aren't doing as well as I expected and, and what's going on and do we why do we still want to own them and do we? And the converse, companies that I don't own that are starting to do much better and we say, wait a moment, we need to do some work on that because maybe we should be buying it. That's really interesting about the screening tool. Is that a combination of automated screening and a manual screening by your analyst team, for example? No, that is actually the beauty of this one is it is purely automated. So all the information comes from from across across the London market or the UK market. And as I say, it's updated every day and it's factual information. All the analysis and, and my work and my analysts work comes on top of that or comes after that. But so, it's, it's a, as I said, it's a fantastic way to try and separate the wood from the trees. This is where we need to focus. So, again, going back to the question about how do I deal with 250 emails? Well, obviously, I delete a huge amount every day without reading them because right now I'm not interested in that name. I know I'm not. Therefore, delete, delete, delete. This is something that we're really interested in. I want to do more work on. Start reading that email. And what can, on the sort of more manual screening process with your analysts and your research team, what can companies do that might increase the chances of you researching, potentially investing in them? Or if the financial fundamentals are not there, I'm assuming they just get screened out anyway. Yes. So so that's the absolute starting point. A company ought to be scoring well on, on our metrics and or improving. So, for example, in particular, I mean, I mentioned I mentioned quality as something that we focus on. And, and as I said, we, we use balance sheet metrics. So we obviously it depends on the company, but we focus on things like return on equity or ROIC, return on invested capital. And that is something. So, for example, a company that we know that we're monitoring with a poor ROIC, but where we start to see improvements. And if that is a focus for management, that they're talking about it, they're discussing how they're going to improve it. That's a kind of lovely, not a flashing red light, a flashing green light to go away do more work, potentially meet the company, sort of starting points like that. The other side of it, I I said I would talk quite a bit about momentum and and in particular, say, the focus. My focus is very much on earnings momentum. So the thing a company can't do is have a profit warning. That's just, that's a no-no, unsurprising, but true. Yeah, fair enough. And any thoughts if a company does have bad news and it's a company where you might be maybe a significant shareholder in that company, any just advice for how the investor relations or management team should be interacting with and communicating with you on the day that that bad news comes out? Yes, that is a very good question. So again, I I don't think I'm going to surprise you, but first and foremost, honesty. Tell it like it is. That really has to be the, the start and the end. Again, it's an investor's proverb, but profit warnings tend to come in threes. So If you're going to slash your numbers and you have to slash your numbers because things aren't working, please, please be very cautious and err on the side of understanding that don't just do a 10% down rate when it should be a 20. Put it all out there. So that's the kind of crucial. And that's obviously that's the broad statement that a company will will put out on the on the unfortunate morning when there's profit morning. Then for us, if if we're large shareholders, absolutely, I would expect IR to get in touch and we will have a a meeting on the day it almost inevitably it'll be a zoom or it'll be a, a phone call if we're large shareholders and it's going wrong we need to have that discussion with the senior management and just on the financial metrics again as well any thoughts on heavily adjusted financials or thoughts around what companies should be presenting when it comes to more statutory measures versus adjusted measures 
So we have an internal joke here at JP Morgan about earnings before bad stuff. And it's they're lovely. Guess what? But yes, 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 we do. And I fully understand, you know, actually, we're all trying to get information out of out of the numbers, out of the figures being presented. And often statutory figures are not helpful. We don't have a problem per se with adjusted numbers, but it has to be with a common sense hat on. I feel very strongly about as investors, we compare companies in sectors. We all know this. This is, this is how we work. So actually, if all companies in your sector treat share-based payments in a certain way, then it behoves you to do the same. That it's, it should always be borne in mind by management that we will be making these comparisons. So please make them easy. Very good point, I think, for IR teams there on, on the sector benchmarking in particular. In terms of your 200 emails this morning, I'm assuming a high volume of that is sell-side coverage, so equity sales notes or sell-side research, but I, I could be mistaken. Um, being interesting to hear your perspectives on how you use sell-side research, how sell-side research has changed, particularly since Mifid 2, and I'm happy to share my views from an IR perspective on that as well, but interested in how you use sell-side research. Yes, so the vast bulk of my emails are absolutely external research. So it's, as you say, sales, salesmen and, and women and analysts. As you heard, you know, we've got internal analysts here, but we absolutely, and I absolutely use external sell-side analysts. And I actually see part of my job is for each company that I'm interested in, I know who the best analyst is. And it may or may not be the broker. That's not the point. So, and, and ideally, I know the two or three people that I would want to speak to on it. So I rely on them because they, as you heard, my my universe goes from 100 million up to 5 billion. There may be less companies in the UK than there used to be, but there's still a lot of them. So I rely on the analysts who cover maybe 10 stocks. So they know them backwards and forwards. And also they're in much more regular contact with management than I am. So I very, very much rely on them. I rely on their forecasts in terms of those are the numbers out there in the street. Those are the numbers that the company is supposed to meet. But I don't rely on them in terms of buy this, sell this, here's our target price. That's my job. That's not theirs. When I want to do a deep dive into companies or one specific area, let's say the area that I'm worried is going to go wrong or the area that's really, really doing well and outperforming. And I want to know why and why those drivers won't change, all that sort of data. Absolutely. That is when I'll have a Zoom, a coffee or a phone call with the analysts in question. The really interesting points about actually speaking to you have preferred analysts for each sectors, because I think it's so important for our teams to know who the buy side value which might be different to who actually the IR team values and to make sure they're having those early results morning conversations with with those analysts in particular. Any more specific thoughts on how research has changed since Mifid 2 came into force? So this is a good question and I am very interested to hear what your views are on, on the impact of Mifid. I'm going to say I think possibly slightly controversially yes of course there's been a diminution in the amount of research but actually there are a lot of extremely good analysts out there. And we find there are, if I say enough, it's always good to have more. But in general, we find there are there are enough and they're good enough. So I say I know a lot of people bemoan the, the demise, but it's actually less of an issue for us, I think. Interesting. I guess from my perspective around cell-size research, I, I started in-house. I was at a FTSE 250 in-house and then a FTSE 100. And this is going back over 10 years. You could almost rely on the cell side to market 
he wants an equity story on your behalf. So you would often speak to investors who's already been very well educated by the sell side. And so a lot of that kind of understanding of the business, understanding the business and strategy, understanding of the sector had already, that educational piece had already been often done on your behalf by the sell side. What we've really seen from large cap down to, to small cap is Analysts are covering a much higher volume of stocks now. There's definitely been a decline in the number of sell-side analysts and a lot of those companies' coverage has been assumed, therefore, by their peers at, at the bank. So they're covering a high volume of stocks and that just means they're very time pressured, particularly when there's more IPOs going on, they have even less time. So the, the research coverage has become less sort of in-depth thought leadership and more factual, reactive, responsive notes, often just regurgitating the results statements. And and that's a generalization. There are very much thought leaders out there. There are very much opinionated analysts out there. And those are the ones I think IR teams should really be investing in. But I think all of the kind of impacts of MIFID 2 in terms of particularly for mid-cap declining research coverage, but also the high volume of stocks being covered by analysts means that there's more pressure on companies to do that marketing work themselves. And actually, I think having a better communication strategy, making your materials more readily available for investors, having a better dialogue, dialogue of investors is much more the company's responsibility than maybe it was 10 years ago when I started my IR career. Okay, that's really, really interesting. As you said in your intro, I've been doing this a very, very long time. And that has to be some upsides to all that years of experience. So so the, the good thing from where I stand, obviously excluding IPOs, is I have a lot of background knowledge many, many, many years of background knowledge on a very large number of companies. So that that definitely is, is, is a positive for us, for me. But in addition, you know, I've talked a little bit about our internal analysts and, and in particular um, the analysts who works with me on, on UK mids and smalls. And actually, of course, we can do really well because he's a great analyst. And so an under-researched company, it'll pop up on my screens, his screens, we'll talk about it, and he will go away and do massive in-depth research himself and so that gives us an edge it's a two-way street on that the other thing I was I was going to say definitely if I'm asked or sometimes even when I'm not asked I will be very clear with management who I think the good analysts are and I think if, if management don't know that they should be asking and don't ask one ask ask all their investors and they will very quickly I'm sure find a consensus and then they'll know where to who to target in case if they didn't already Let's turn now to some of your views on best practice in corporate reporting. So I'm interested in how much, how important the company investor websites to you, what type of information, be it digital or sort of short or long form video content, do you engage with that type of content on companies' websites? Or if not, what, what's the most useful content for companies to put on their investor websites? If I think about that question, yes, of course, investor websites are, I mean, have hugely grown in importance for, for lots of reasons. I mean, in particular, because this is how we get a lot of data nowadays. And, and as you said, because, you know, if you've got less coverage, you, you need to do more of it yourself. So absolutely, it's still, I'm not going to name names, but it's still quite shocking when you go onto some websites and they are, to be generous to them, they're probably 10 years out of date. And you go onto the good ones and it's just, it's not only beautifully easy to navigate, which is obviously is important because everything we do is about time management, but very clear in terms of who they're speaking to. So, you know, if you go on to obviously I'll go on to the investor side and read all about the company and the information I want from as an investor. But often I'll go and look about, oh, what if I was a customer or what if I was? And then you see the, the good ones totally differentiate in how they 
portray themselves. And, and I mean that in a good way, because you're talking to, to different end users. As I said, I'm sure we're, we are all time poor and time management has literally become a very crucial part of fund management. So personally, I definitely prefer brevity. I also would love to have time to watch lots of videos, but it's not going to happen often at all. This is a voice of one, you know, maybe other people spend all their days watching videos. And, you know, it is a great way to, to soak up information, but, but normally, you know, by definition, they, they will tend to be longer. So I, I really do kind of stress the, stress the brevity part. For IR teams on limited budgets in particular, there's always you've always got to factor in the return on investment from all the time and preparation that goes into producing this sort of digital video content. So that's that's really interesting to hear your perspective. And do you feel a similar way about capital markets days as the deep dives that companies offer? Actually, I was going to bring that up with with one of your previous questions. So no, I may be wrong, but I reckon that sort of if you went back even ten years, we didn't really have capital markets day. They were incredibly few and far, far between. Now everyone's everyone's got it. And I think rightly, I think they are extremely useful. The issue again is we can't go to them all and I can't go to them all. So very much have to pick and choose. And that's it's various things. It may be because for you know various reasons I'm very interested in that company at the moment, or it's a very large holding of mine, or it may depend on the content. So some companies do a big broad brush and obviously the less you hear from the chief executive and the finance director, the better for us because we meet them. We know them. That's not, you know, that's not the issue. So you want to see the the breadth of, of management. That's that's sort of very important to us. But on occasion, it works extremely well when a company just picks on one area and does a sort of pop out on this bit that you all sort of think you know about. And it may only be 15% of revenues, but actually there's a reason we're talking about it because we think it's very exciting, it's not very well known and it's got great prospects. So kind of horses, horses, but I do think it's three hours of my time to really, really get something different from the normal one-on-one management meetings that we have. No, that's really helpful advice. Any thoughts on presentations, so around results reporting? In particular, any thoughts around the balance between backwards and forwards looking data, short and long-term strategic commentary? That is a good question. I think in terms of backward versus forward looking, the, the point about results is you are you are looking backwards and that's relevant to us. So that should be the key focus if you're doing your full year results. Obviously, everyone wants, everyone cares about the outlook, you know, what's going to happen next. But actually, you know, we want the deep dive into what happened in the last year or the, the last period. I think, you know, of course, you've got to talk about current trading, the, out, the outlook, but actually the, the focus there is, is very much on what happened in the year. In terms of short-term strategy versus long, I think it's a little bit sad what I'm going to say, but markets are pretty short-termist. So I think the market moves on short-term. Of course, I want to hear big picture, longer term, but actually the one that moves the market move share prices is going to be the more short-term strategy. I'm afraid that's just life. What about annual reports and how much would you use an annual report's content relative to the latest results presentation or other available content on the company's website? Okay, so I'm going to be very honest here and I don't read annual reports nearly as much as I would like to. Again, this is just about how many hours uh, there are in the day. However, I have a man who does. And so absolutely they are they are red and then the salient points are pointed out to me. So absolutely. And if we're if my analyst is looking at a, a company we don't know well or he doesn't know well, he'll go back through 10 years of annual reports or we'll go into company house. So that data is, is there forever and, and it is 
extremely important. The fact that I don't read it should be completely irrelevant to the importance of, of these annual reports. Great. Let's turn now to how you like to engage with companies. So how frequently do you like to meet with your investee companies and any thoughts on how you like to run those meetings? So the kind of balance of conversation, Q&A, presentation, information shared. I am going to say for me, and let's be clear, you know, I'm in a very privileged position here at JP Morgan Asset Management. We can have as many company meetings as we want. We could be doing five a day, five days a week. You know, the, the issue is not getting the companies in. The, again, the issue is making sure that you're seeing the right ones, uh, spending the proportion of time. So some companies that I will pretty much see twice a year, and there are some companies that I own, that I own in size, that I may not even see for almost two years. If everything's going right, everything I can see is absolutely ticking on, ideally even better than, than expectations. I don't need to waste my time or, or the management's time. That That's how I look at it. And I try to be very, very clear for those companies that is fed back. We don't need a meeting because we are completely happy. If we're not happy, we will always have a meeting. So it really, it's not supposed to be a negative. And I think probably unusual in that. But again, you know, if you've known a lot of these companies for a long, long time, two years can sort of pass in, in a flash. And I don't think I'm I'm missing out. Obviously, I, I read the research. So it, it really is sort of depends on the company itself, on the environment. And for example, I mean, especially in some sectors, for example, if you take a house builder, if you've seen one and you hear what they have to say, you don't need to see any of the others. And, and that's, it sounds terrible, but, you know, the, the underlying message of, of what's going on is going to be generally extremely similar in a sector like that. It's often quite disconcerting for IR teams when particularly large shareholders turn down meetings. But I think you're right. That's actually a positive sign that everything's going well and they're communicating in a way that it's understandable. So there's no need to be concerned in those situations. On the kind of flip side, would there be any particular bad negative circumstances where you might request or your team might request to speak to a chair or senior non-executive director rather than the executive management or IR? Yes, there will be. But ideally, and, and point of fact, they're pretty few and far between. So I think normally it would be if there's a sudden management change, i.e. management suddenly goes, whether of their own accord or not, you know, that we would absolutely expect to speak to the chair on that, something like that. Probably likewise on, on some large acquisitions, sometimes we don't just want to speak to the executive management, but, but, but non-execs on that. And then on ESG, as portfolio managers, we ourselves engage, but we also have a stewardship team. And there will be definitely times when we let the stewardship team engage directly with the chairman or with the the non-exec whose focus that is. So ideally, it is few and far between. But yes, if we need to. And how do you approach giving feedback to companies, management teams to ultimately be fed back to the board? Do you have a preference for unattributed feedback via brokers or direct feedback to the company? I'm actually going to turn the question around and and ask this of you. So almost inevitably, I give feedback to the companies, to their face. This is, we're in a meeting, we're on a Zoom, whatever it is. Whether we know them very well or whether we don't, that's not the point. We're grown-ups, we should tell them exactly what we're thinking, the good and the bad. If you've got concerns, you should absolutely be discussing those with management in front of you. And so I've always done that. And again, it's hard to find the time and it's never high priority to give the feedback via, not to be rude, but, you know, via the IR. You just say, no, no, really, I've, I've given it to company management. And the reason I said I'm, I'm sort of throwing that back at you, because I was talking with a corporate broker the other day and I said exactly this. 
And he said to me, yes, you know, there may be an, an issue that you haven't thought about here that you tell the company some, something negative, they don't have to pass it on to anyone else because they were the only ones in the meeting. If it comes through IR, then it's going to be, you know, it's going to be disseminated more broadly. I hadn't thought about that. And I like to think that if I've told a company I'm worried about something, other people will too, and they'll be thinking about it and worrying about it. But I thought it was, it was an interesting comment. I'll start by, I think, the preference for how communication or feedback is communicated for IR teams. And that's, as you say, firstly, in the meeting. So I would, if I'm there in an IR capacity, be studiously writing down absolutely everything they say that's constituted feedback, normally at the beginning of the meeting. And then the end of the meeting is sometimes a nice opportunity for the company management to ask any questions or perspectives, like your point about which sell-side analysts are they preferred, or if they're changing auditors, is there a view on, on that kind of, those kind of subjects can be covered at the end of the meeting as well then when I was in the house if there were unanswered questions I would often just pick up the phone a day or two later bother about these questions and that's another opportunity to give more feedback on your point about sort of unattributed <laughs> feedback I asked have a I don't don't like it so much because actually if you're owning the companies or you're the first point of contact for the investor for the company you kind of want to have the sort of end-to-end understanding of that relationship so you know what their perspectives are be it positive or negative and your job as a professional is is to make sure that's communicated in a balanced format to, to the board I know brokers like to have the relationships as well. And I think they've become more almost protective of those relationships and separately to the companies as well. So I think they value the opportunity to have that dialogue with investors, particularly post-Mifid 2. And, and I do think if the IR team is the one actually getting the feedback on behalf of the company is that the brokers shouldn't be cut out of that process. And actually it's important for the brokers to be aware of what the investors are saying as well. So if you are as an IR team, the ones owning the feedback, then you should be sharing that with your brokers as well as your board. So everyone's kind of in the loop about what the kind of market perception is of the company and what the consistent feedback is. And then just on on the subject of brokers, do you attend many broker-led events like conferences or sort of sell-side teach-ins? Sellside teachings, no conferences. Funny enough, I've been to one in the last month and I'm going to one in the next couple of weeks. But then by and large, the answer is no, because companies come in to see us. So when I look at the list of companies in general, of the 15 names I'm interested in, I've seen 10 of them in the last five or six months anyway. So, you know, it's just it tends not to tends not to work for me personally, but I can fully understand for some people it's a fantastic, again, time management tool, go sit down, do an entire day of meeting, and you've saved yourself a lot of time. As we start to kind of wrap up the conversation, is there anything companies do that frustrates you or if you have one piece of advice for IROs who are listening to this conversation, what would that be? Honestly, it's a clear, but I'm going to say honesty and brevity. And just on the honesty point, it was interesting. I, I, it, it doesn't matter who, but I saw a company very recently who had just had numbers. The numbers were very good. Outlook was everything going fine. Thank you. And mentioned, you know, one market that was, was weak, which we all should have known. And the shares were off. And they came in to see us. And I said something about the share price. And they said, well, A, we would have thought the entire market knew that, you know, whatever area is weak. But we had to say it because it's true. And and I was categorical. Yes, of course you have to say it. Of course you have to say it. If the market's ridiculous enough to overreact for no reason, right now we're in that kind of volatile market. I want it all out there, really put it all out there. So honesty really is absolutely the only policy. 
And just on the brevity point, if a company is quite complex, maybe they don't sit in a natural peer group or they've got lots of different businesses doing lots of different things. How do you manage that balance between keeping the message succinct and consistent and brief, but also ensuring the market understands? Because that's always a bit of a challenge in IR. No, that, that's very fair. And I, and I said it, it was a glib answer that I gave. So sometimes you just can't, you can't be brief. Well, then then don't be. The other thing I would just say on this, I, I have been known to get quite irate with management about some of some announcements, year-end results, whatever it is, announcement that they put out, where, again, as I said, the numbers are great, the story's great, the outlook's great, but they've absolutely put the market into a spin with wording. And I was like, did none of you ever sit back and just as a normal person, not the chief exec, not the FD, not, not the IR, you know, just as a regular person read it and think, oh, maybe that doesn't sound as, as if it should. And there are one or two companies I know, and I really have been known to go on about this, who literally tell me that, that now before they put out an announcement, they try and read it again and think, what would an investor, what would Georgina think when she reads this? And it's not, forget that it's me, but, you know, make sure that to outside eyes, you are saying what you want to say. Yes, I want honesty, but but really sometimes sometimes the message isn't as clear as it as it should be. That's a really interesting point. It just I'm thinking back to your earlier point about actually when you see corporate websites where they have a customer-facing website, which has a completely different tone of voice to the investor-facing website. Sometimes getting that, it's always you need a consistency of brand tone of voice, but obviously different audiences and a tailored message. But that's a real struggle sometimes, or certainly a challenge of, of IR and something that everyone who's successful in IR needs to learn to, to master. I personally found it particularly challenging where you work with founders who are very wedded to one particular way of talking about the business and, and trying to translate that into, particularly for a newly listed company, into a conversation the city would understand better and more clearly is is always a balancing act I think for IR of not irritating your founder while also keeping your investors happy so I think it's it's an interesting point but it's it's definitely a challenge for IR and sometimes you have multiple cooks on these announcements where you have a comms team a marketing team who have sight of them alongside a PR team alongside an IR team and trying to sort of keep all stakeholders happy is is an ongoing challenge of, of IR but I'm always coming at it obviously from the investor's perspective and so I completely agree with with what you said there. And finally, have you got any questions for me? I've obviously worked in investor relations for 11 years. So anything else that we've not covered that you'd be interested in asking? The one question I'm, I'm going to ask you, and it's, it's not meant to be a mean one, but really, I'd be very interested in how much influence do you think you, you have on a board, on the management team? I think you have, you hold the influence in the sense that you you understand a very different perspective about the business. And one of the unique things about IR, and I think why IR is becoming more strategic, is you kind of have this top-down perspective. You're trying to take something complex and the board papers for a whole day of board meetings have a huge amount of detail about the operations and the ins and outs of the business. And you have to distill all of that information into ideally a 10 slide presentation that you speak to people about twice a year. And as a result of that, you have this very interesting perspective of the business. And then when you overlay what you're saying with the feedback that you get from investors, often that can identify issues there's one example from a company I've worked with. I was really struggling to articulate. We had four strategic pillars and there were three of them. They were very clear and relatable, understandable. 
And one that none of us could communicate. <laughs> and and then, you know, it wasn't just me, it was my management team alongside me. And we realized the reason we were struggling to articulate that was because there was just the strategy didn't work and it didn't make sense. And investors couldn't understand it because they can, you know, get it. And so you do have that perspective that I think gives you, because you've got the dialogue with a CEO, you know, very direct access to very senior people in the business on a very regular basis. You can have that influence. And I think we're seeing more more IR people moving into strategic roles, be it corporate development, if they have a banking background, or or sometimes actually sort of being more involved in the strategy and driving the strategy of the business. And I think it's really helpful to have that sort of external top-down perspective of the business. So you do have influence, but you have to have the gravitas and the credibility and force that influence as an IR team. And particularly if you're relatively sort of young in your career, it can take a while to establish that authority and having the confidence to, to really sort of call out the executive team or, or where things aren't working, where things are wrong and, and be very honest with the feedback that you're consistently getting from investors. Because generally it's going to be the same feedback and you will have to sit there and, and listen to several people complaining about the same issue. And then it's your job to make sure that has the influence that level. So I think they do have very strong influence. And I think IR has become a lot more strategic, but it's also down to the individual to make sure you're using that influence in the, the appropriate way. That's very interesting. We were an investor in a, in, a, in a company which was very successful. And I say was because it got, it got bought out several years ago, many years ago for a lovely price. Again, it had various strands. You know, we were talking through it and I literally just said, okay, stop, stop, stop. I said to the chief executive, so that Okay, please just tell me this. How do you describe what you do and what your company does? How do you describe that to your mother? And that sounds sort of denigrating. It didn't mean it at all. I was like, I want words of one syllable, no expertise, no knowledge, no jargon. And it was very interesting. It was very useful. So that's a complete aside, but I just I just remembered it. It was it was really it's really good answer he gave in the end. And that is, that's a, it's a good exercise to go through. And again, it's something particularly newly listed companies really struggle with because they're so in the, the detail of their business and where it's not easily understandable or relatable or has peer groups. That's where it's a real challenge to try and shift it and simplify the messaging to help people understand. So I, I mean, that's why I, are such a, I find it such an interesting job is because it's communication, but it's such a specialist form of communication. You've got to understand the financial impacts, but you're also working with often strong founder or strong management teams. So you've got to be sensitive to, to their preferences for communication while also keeping your investors happy. So it's, it's juggling those stakeholders makes it a very interesting and exciting job. Georgina, thank you very much for joining me on Inquire and for sharing your insights and perspectives on companies' communication with investors. I would know, very much enjoyed talking to you and you obviously do love it, so that's, that's always great to hear. So no, absolutely my pleasure. And thank you for joining Inquire, the Investor Relations Podcast. Please look out for our next episode 